Welcome to a coronavirus update on Talk Podcasts. I'm Marcus Stead, and I'm joined by Greg Lance Watkins. The situation here in Britain is becoming more and more serious by the day. As we're recording this, it's just been announced that Health Minister Nadine Doris has tested positive for coronavirus. In my home city of Cardiff, a worker tested positive for the virus in a call centre about one mile from my home. In this podcast, we aim to strike a balance between making listeners aware of the sheer seriousness of the situation while remaining calm and avoiding hysteria. We also aim to give sensible advice as to what we, as individuals, can do to minimise the risks to ourselves, our families and to wider society. Greg, we're recording this podcast late on the evening of Wednesday, the 10th of March. Can you begin, please, by telling us what the latest figures are that we have? Indeed, I can. But first, I'd like to put out the caveat that they'll be out of date already. So by the time this is up on the Internet and people see it, uh, beware the figures I'm giving with 100 and 18,889 recorded cases worldwide and 4,269 deaths worldwide will probably be pretty wildly inaccurate. Indeed. Um, And we're just finding out uh, literally in the last 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, and this will be a major news story by the time you're listening to this probably, is that England's junior health minister, Nadine Doris, who even those who don't follow politics that closely will remember from me, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here jungle just a few years ago. She has tested positive. We gather she's all right, but she's self-isolating as of this evening. So for those who didn't listen last week or for those who uh, don't remember it that well, can you remind us, please, about why we should be more concerned about this than we are of standard flu which uh, it kills people every winter. Why is this more severe than the, the ordinary strains of flu we get each and every year? I'd also like to add into that a caveat. Firstly, at the moment, it looks very much as if the number of deaths in percentage terms are running at around 4%. The government initially started out saying that it was too to two and a half percent they moved that up to it was now appearing to be two and a half to three percent three and a half percent uh we're now looking very much as if it's on around four percent four thousand deaths a hundred thousand just over um cases so the figures are escalating in almost every way Also bear in mind that of the 1,118 deaths, uh, sorry, cases, 69,000 are now no longer active cases in that the individuals have recovered and are no longer testing positive. That means there's somewhere in the region of 45,000 who are still positive. 45,000 yet to establish how many will die amongst those 45,000 during the next 10 days or so. Right. In percentage terms, therefore, can you say to us 
what the mortality rate is on the average strain of winter flu and compare it to the coronavirus? Because I think that's the important aspect here. Indeed, I can. And the point here is that the death rate at the moment would appear to be somewhere in the region of 7 to 7.5% for the coronavirus. In terms of standard annual winter flu, approximately 0.1% mortality of those who catch it. This flu, with the government guidance figure of 3.5%, is staggeringly higher. And even it, looking at it with the figure at 7, 7.5%, as it would appear to more realistically be once the entire 1,000, uh, sorry, 118,000 people have proceeded from positive to no longer positive, 7 to 7.5%. Now think in terms of the very young who have a very good survival rate in this instance. Now, which... this is important. This is an important point you're making here because I've been chatting to two people today alone, uh, one on social media, one in real life, who are parents of very young children. And one in particular is concerned that both she and her children are showing symptoms of what might be coronavirus, not to say it will be. And she's done the responsible things in the last day or so. But in terms of children, it seems that very few, if any, children have become seriously ill or died as a result of this. But that's not to say that you shouldn't isolate your children, because by definition, if they're out there in the real world, in the outside world, they're going to come into contact with their grandparents. They're going to be sat next to older people at bus stops or in cafes or wherever. So your child, the thing we've got to try and do in this podcast, and I, I urge all media outlets to do this, is to strike a balance between explaining the seriousness of what is going on whilst at the same time not causing alarm. There is probably not much reason to be unduly concerned about your own children. However, you should isolate them for the extended period of time because inevitably they will come into contact with others, namely older people and those with underlying health conditions. I think an important thing to point out here is um, where Marcus talks of children, he is talking of very young children. When I talk of children, I'm talking of the under 40s, uh, being my age, uh, which is 74. Uh, so the mortality rate of those under 40 is very low. But even if you look at it as 1%, which would be a reasonable guesstimate, that still means it, that mortality from coronavirus is 10 times more fatal, even for those under 40, than the annual winter flu. Now, let me ask you something about that, because, again, I want to strike that balance between being honest and giving good advice without frightening people. 
And therefore, when you say 1%, and that is a high figure in the under 40s, if indeed it's the case, point one, how many of those are actually children and how many of them are people my age? I'm 36, for example. And of those that are being affected that in that 1% of under 40s, how many of them are, for example, former cancer patients who've had their immune systems weakened by chemotherapy? Because I know people who um, have recovered very well from cancer and are about my age. But if there's a bug going round, a winter cold going round, you can guarantee they'll be the first to get it. So people in that position, should they be concerned? Anybody with any immunity deficiency should be very concerned. Mm. Age doesn't enter into this. And although you're talking of people who've recovered from cancer, you are, if you're actually being realistic about recovered from cancer you're talking of people who have had no sign of cancer for five years Mm. i don't think that is the group you're thinking of Mm. the group that is in danger are those who have had chemo probably within the last three or four years and their immune system has not recovered fully Mm. so if you have uh copd Uh, you are at risk because that is um, a congestive condition which affects the lungs and the heart. If you have uh, had any kind of illness that has affected the immune system, you are immediately at risk, but higher risk. If you have had virtually any major illness ongoing, you are in a higher risk group. I'd like to stress, first of all, is if you are, as Marcus puts it, a child living away from home, be that at university, college, uh, or working away from home in the younger age group, do your family a favour. Don't go and visit. Right. This is an important point because... As we know, Italy is effectively in lockdown now, and I've got family in northern Italy in the area around uh, Gonzaga, Lake Lake Mantova, Parma, the area that was initially um, sealed off and and on lockdown. Now, yeah, you got it. And now the whole of Italy is in the same position. And looking at the numbers, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I'll let you back in in a sec, but I want to expand on this point. The numbers Italy had two weeks ago are the numbers we have now. We are effectively two weeks behind Italy. And the criticism that was leveled at the Italian government was that they were too slow to act before reaching the current point, which is, it brings me on to something you might wish to address in a moment, and that is whether we should act sooner rather than later in approaching the, the lockdown scenario. But I'm glad you mentioned universities and so forth, because I was away at university for three years and I would return home um, for, for occasional weekends once every few weeks and what have you. And I would come home for holiday periods. But what I found from the time I arrived at university until the time I left is that every cold, every bug, I would get the lot because you're in that very intense environment with a lot of students in close proximity, you're sharing um, kitchen facilities and bathroom facilities, and you're in lecture halls, a lot of you, you're in corridors, you're in bars, you're in cafes, you name it. It's a very dense environment. And that, I, I found, 
well, I'm not the only person there. I think every student I know would probably reach the same conclusion. You do get a lot of what they used to call freshers flu. I think that term is still used. You get a lot of bugs and so forth. So therefore, the two, two points. One, yes, it's probably what you're saying is correct. Don't go home and visit family at weekends and so forth for the time being because you will come into contact with much older people and that in itself presents a risk. And um, the other is universities themselves, as I say, by definition, lots of people moving around in, in an enclosed campus in various capacities. Is it time to close down the lecture theatres, the seminar halls, the students' unions, the bars, the nightclubs, the lot, and advise students to live a much more low-key lifestyle for the time being? I don't quite know how we go about this because, by definition, if you're in a shared house or a hall of residence, you are inevitably going to be sharing kitchen and bathroom facilities. But I don't have the answer here. What would you just say? I know I've, I've, I've thrown a lot of points at you there, but what would you say to that? Well, my first point is that part of the reason you catch every damn thing going when you first go to university is you have not, having come from home and the same environment over the last umpteen years, you have not developed the larger version of herd immunity. Mm. So you are being put together with all sorts of other people from different backgrounds and their immunities are different to yours and yours is different from theirs. So there is a very high potential of not being immune to the new viruses and illnesses uh, for at least the first six months, maybe longer, of being at university. Therefore, Whilst you are in this vulnerable condition, without going in and out of student bars, um, be it student lecture halls or being student bedrooms, you will find that you are taking home, if you visit home, an entirely new batch of problems. Well, that's right, because inevitably, if you are in that student environment, particularly if you are a student who is residing in student residence, you'll be mixing with people from different parts of the country and indeed different parts of the world. And as you say, you'll be taking that home with you at weekends or for Christmas holiday or, East, or more to the point Easter holiday period, which isn't too far away. So I take on board what you're saying. So therefore, if I can ask you a more direct question based on what you've just said, should universities now be closing down not only their lecture halls and their seminar halls, but also their students' unions, their nightclubs? It won't be perfect because students will inevitably, when they're cooking and washing, be in communal facilities. But is that a sensible thing for universities to do at this point? I think it is a sensible thing to explain the risks to students. Hmm. We live in a free country. Where possible, I don't want to see those freedoms curtailed. Ah, uh, yes, but you've got to balance what you're saying. You've got to balance that with if, if the, the university course is carrying on as normal, I was trying to balance it by finishing off and saying, if students do not respond on a voluntary basis, we may need to bring in compulsion, but I would like them to act in an educated manner and curtail an awful lot of their social experience for at least the balance of this term and probably right the way through the summer term. I think our government is at the moment 
playing it just about exactly right. We do not want to stop everybody from getting this virus at this stage by locking them down per se. We want the virus to continue in as controlled a manner as possible. If it is continuing amongst the young who are very much less at risk from it, that is well and good. They will be building up an immunity for their future. Let me stop you there because you're saying something something important here. And this is a very, very important point. You and I spoke last week about this, and I I think we've got to make it clear what we're expecting here. Boris Johnson said um, yesterday, Monday, what you and I said in the podcast last week, in that about 80% of the population will get this sooner or later. And what the, the measures announced yesterday in particular were about delaying that as much as possible preferably to the end of April into the summer months, because the virus can survive outside the human body for a much shorter period in the summer months. We, um, think. we, we, th- we think. And therefore, well, that does two things. The first is that it's, it puts less pressure on the NHS. The normal pressures of winter will have gone for, the, for this period of time. And the second is we are gradually then as a society building up an immunity to it, because once you've had it once, it does seem as though you won't get it again, as is the case with normal strains of flu and colds and so forth. To to, to finish where I was a moment ago, I've noticed that particularly since I turned 30 and I'm 36 now, I seem to get far fewer colds than I used to. And that is probably because I've had a lot of them already, particularly when I was at university. So what I'm saying at is, is the government does seem in its own way, and, and I agree with you, I think they have handled it well overall. They know we're all going to get it. Well, 80% of us are more going to get it, but push it into the summer months if possible. And that's what these containment measures have been all about. However, that said, it does seem as though at some point in the next few weeks, we're going to reach a lockdown scenario. Now, I personally think it's going to be a little bit sooner than you do, based on the conversations we've had. Uh, I'm looking at what's going on now. Obviously, we've had the lockdown in Italy, and that's affected all aspects of life. France, which is obviously that bit nearer to us, they have effectively banned all mass gatherings and major sporting events in France. Six Nations Rugby and their own domestic football league has all been cancelled. Spain, we saw earlier this evening, Valencia in the Champions League was played behind closed doors. In this country, we're not quite there yet. But when, okay, without going as far as Italy has gone, how long do you think it will now be before we are told that where France was a week ago when we talked about what Macron did, no, no indoor gatherings of above 5,000, that then escalated in the last few days to no stadium gatherings for sporting or other events. When do you think those sort of restrictions will be coming to this country? Because right now, as we speak, the Cheltenham Festival is going on as normal. Champions League football is going on as normal. It can't be that much longer before we reach the situation France was in a week ago or Italy was in two weeks ago. Well, firstly, both Italy and France are very different societies to that of Britain. They are much more touchy-feely. As individuals, uh, they're more inclined to hug each other, kiss each other on the cheeks, etc. 
So they are playing straight into the hands of the virus. Mm. So that to measure us directly against them is not a sensible comparison, in my opinion. But the young in and this country are much more touchy-feely than the old, aren't they? You I see young people hugging and kissing far more than you do old people in Britain. Uh, I would also say that the big problem that those countries have is that they've made measures like no meetings over 5,000. Well, if you meet 100 people, you're already in a meeting that there are 5,000 people at that meeting, you're only going to meet about 100 of them. So it is a bit silly, in my opinion, to say meetings over 5,000. I would go as far as to say that no one can attend meetings for a period if it reaches the stage where France and Italy are. Because whether there are a uh, hundred, five thousand, or half a million people at meeting, you're only going to meet and contact a given number. So it means nothing to say meetings over five thousand. Meetings over five thousand means there are five thousand people on the underground or the metro um, at any given time, so you can't go on the metro. It doesn't make sense as a definition. It's a knee-jerk reaction that hasn't been thought through. Where we are going to score, in my opinion, is that Boris Johnson is playing very much the same game that Neville Chamberlain did. He is playing it down. There will be peace in our time. But what he's doing is stalling the inevitable that will be coming along of more of a lockdown long enough that we have more availability in our hospitals we've been able to obtain more of the technical gadgetry that will be required like ventilators we will have more nurses in situ who are fit and healthy and don't have the winter flu we will have more doctors available and fully trained to lead their staff we will have more capacity in the hospital to cope and we will have pushed it down the track a little way you may call it kicking the can down the road but what a sensible idea if you are then in a position to deal with the can a damn sight better but when and you I talk about sizes and sizes of crowds to, to, to take this to another level if you like Let's take Gibraltar as an example, a, a British territory. Um, they had one case of coronavirus, and that individual has now recovered. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of anyone else becoming ill. However, guess what starts on Friday? The Gibraltar Open Snooker Tournament, where there will be people flying into the island from Wednesday onwards. In effect, some may have even arrived already. There will be players there will be referees, there will be officials. Most of the players will come from all four corners of the United Kingdom and also the Republic of Ireland, some from China, a small number from continental Europe, and one or two from Australia. The officials, a lot of the younger referees nowadays, uh, come from Eastern Europe. And, all, and there'll be officials from goodness knows where. And say a few officials from China, a few players from China as well. They'll all be congregating 
on Gibraltar, a country that appeared to have rid itself from this. And bear in mind, every single one of those people that's going to fly in in the next few days, it's about who they've been in contact with in the last two, three weeks, however. They could be carrying it with no symptoms whatsoever. That sort of event, uh, look, these are personal friends of mine in some cases. As people know, I work extensively in, as, a, as a snooker journalist. This event shouldn't really be happening, should it? Um, I think that particularly with this particular event, all the commentators, if it, they insist on it carrying on, can work off of two cameras and do their commentaries in their own language from their sitting rooms at home just as easily. Yes. But you're saying of Gibraltar, don't forget that Gibraltar has a common land border with Spain. Mm. Spain has already got 1,695 mm. recorded cases, and that went up by 464 in the last 24 hours, mm. and they've had 35 deaths. Now, look at that in terms of Britain, where 383 people only of the virus, mm. which is three, five, uh, a fifth of that of Spain, and only six people, as opposed to 30, and sorry, 35, mm. um, have died of the virus. Mm. So there are people crossing in and out of Gibraltar every single day by the hundreds. So the Gibraltar um, snooker game isn't going to make a huge amount of difference to that. The only if reason I say that is, is the there, number of places okay. people are coming from. Even if the people going, assuming that the people going there will be sensible, mm. i.e. they won't be coming from Italy, but Italy is locked down. They won't be coming from South Korea, where they have 7,500. Mm. They won't be coming from Iran, where there are 8,000 people, hmm. and they won't be coming from China, where there's 80,000 people. As long as people act responsibly, aware of the danger, and aware that particularly amongst the young, i.e. the majority of the people under 40, bear in mind, it's not you we're worried about. It's hmm. the fact that you stand every possibility of killing your parents. And it is that stark. In terms of the economy, now people might say I'm being a bit cold and calculating when I talk about the economy, but this is important. We saw on Monday um, a huge drop in the uh, FTSE index in, in London, the biggest drop since the 2008 crash. But taking it down to a, a more basic level, if people are not in work, they are not earning money, and therefore they're paying less income tax, they're spending less in the shops, and therefore are spending less on items with VAT, and that is less tax revenue going to the government and therefore into the NHS. On top of that, if they're not in work, even if it's only because their children's school is closed, they may well be entitled to welfare benefits, and therefore the benefit bill goes up because they're not in work. And so therefore, this, the economic aspect of this in that people are not in work and therefore 
the problems it causes in terms of the yield of money going into the NHS over a period of time, not immediately, but over a period of time, that in itself could be very serious. Now, however bad the 2008 crash was, at least there was a solution in that it was a case of recapitalizing the banks and nationalizing the banks in the short term. It was expensive, it was irritating, it was painful, it took a long time to recover, but at least it was clear what needed to be done. In this case, there is no obvious solution. And in terms of the economy, okay, we've already seen Chinese restaurants in this country have taken a huge hit in the last few weeks because of the way people's thought processes work, even though it's not necessarily logical. We've also seen what's going on on the shop shelves in recent days with toilet roll disappearing, but people are not going to be, look, if we're told to be more cautious about going out and so forth, that's going to hit the economy, the retail trade and, and the dining trade. Um, and dare I say it, if sporting events are going on, then it has a knock-on effect for bars and clubs and restaurants in the nearby area, inevitably. So the economic side of this should not be underestimated. And I think uh, I don't have the solution to that. Your thoughts, please. The one group that you left out in a big way is anybody planning on retiring, possibly within the next 10 years. Mm. Pension funds are being affected and it could take at least 10 years to recover the money that is lost when you think that we lost 134 billion off of the, the London exchange on Friday, I think it was. And less than a week earlier, we had lost 117 billion. Uh, these are big numbers. Even if you knock all the noughts off, you're still looking at big numbers per person in the country. This means less money available to reinflate and uh, recharge and invest in businesses when the economy starts to recover. This is long-term damage. We are looking at a very difficult situation. I don't want to alarm people because I'm quite alarmed enough for all of you. On a final note then, in terms of we as individuals, how we can do our bit, each and every one of us, to contain the virus. Now, for example, I'm due to go to the theatre in Swansea tomorrow night. Um, there are, okay, we know the problems with the Six Nations rugby, the Wales-Scotland match in Cardiff, as things stand, is um, scheduled to go ahead on Saturday, even though a case was of coronavirus was diagnosed today at the Sky Call Centre, which is in walking distance of the stadium. Um, we, we'll take the weekend as it comes. I'm expecting the government to announce further measures in the days ahead. At what point should we be saying, OK, let's not go to the pub, let's not go to the restaurant. Um, the sporting event may be still going on, but we shouldn't really go there, particularly if we come home in the evening and we visit our elderly parents or what have you. What else can we do, for example? Okay, we know about washing our hands regularly and everything else like that. You've put out good information on your social media feeds about this. What should we as individuals be doing? And at what point should we really be self-isolating and doing our bit? What should we be doing at this stage? And okay, take it further. Where do you think we'll be by the time we do another podcast this time next week? Well, firstly, I wouldn't be going to the event in Swansea if I was in your position. 
Secondly, I would not go out in Cardiff if there is a major game on in Cardiff. I'd stay in for the day because at the end of the day, let us say you lead a fairly prescribed life for the next four months. That will give even someone like you, Marcus, at um, the age of 36, a potential of another 50 years of life. Going out, exposing yourself to every danger going, you could be terminating your own life, but far worse, that of family and friends. Even perhaps strangers, they matter because they are all part of what we call a family in this nation. Well, yes, in terms of who you're sat behind wherever on public transport or stood behind in the supermarket queue, you're inevitably going to come into contact with elderly people or people with a weakened immune system at some point when you're just going about your daily business. But at the same time, okay, you can restrict yourself on terms of leisure activities, but you've still got to get on the bus and on the train to go to work. Yeah, but you don't have to go to anything else. No, but what's the difference in real terms? I would say that it is purely a selfish act of wisdom to not do anything in groups that you do not have to do for your survival. Every time you meet a group of people, whether that's on a bus, a train, or walking down the street, or at an enclosed event, every time you are putting either your life or their life at risk. If it's as serious as you're saying, if it's as serious as you're saying, and tomorrow morning from about half past six until about nine o'clock, every local train service in Cardiff and into the valleys will be too full because they're too full on an ordinary day because there's, too, there's not enough capacity on the lines. And this, this story is repeated. The London area, same thing. London Underground. The London Underground, even in an ordinary winter, is such a place where you can pick up every virus going because you're, uh, by the definition of the environment you're in, you want a tightly packed train underneath the ground with not very good ventilation. And those trains are sometimes dangerously full, in my view, as are the escalators and everything else. And there's stories like this up and down the country. Whenever you're listening to this in Britain, if you go to and from work by public transport, and nowadays, because um, city centre parking is so expensive and getting in and out of city centres is discouraged by so many town and city councils, public transport is very often the only way of getting to work. So you're on that public transport, but goodness knows who around you and whoever they've come into contact with. Should we even, if we can possibly help it, should we be offering to work from home or having uh, conference meetings via Zoom or, or Skype or what have you? Is even going to work a good idea if it's as serious as you're saying? I personally find dying serious. Yes. So therefore, I'm not making this point flippantly. No, I did. Hang on, Marcus. I did say, Hmm. unless you have to for your survival. But this word have to, nowadays... You have to go to work because you have to earn an income because you have to pay your bills. Yeah, what you have to do is... Let's clarify this point. uh, Hang on. No, no, this is important. This is a very important point. You say you have to do your work, and yes, you do. 
But in many cases, if we've got to start getting a little bit creative here, you have got to write whatever report you've got to write, whatever job it is you do. Fine. You have got to have a meeting with ex-colleagues today. Fine. Write up your report from home. Have your meeting via Zoom or Skype. Is, are we, should we be saying that sort of thing a lot more? If we can do it, yes. Because mm, I think that's, that's where we're heading. For their sake and yours. I'm not saying ban everybody from movement. Mm. I'm saying if everybody who doesn't have to move mm. into groups, there will be less groups. Mm. There will be less risk for those who have to use public transport. Mm. If you don't have to go on a shopping trip, don't go. Where do you think we'll be this time next week? Final point. Um, I think people will be more aware. Um, I think, uh, realistically, if you look at um, the Italians with their death rate, um, 631 funerals, um, they're not happy events, you know. No, I know. It's a tragedy for every one of those families. 10,000 people currently under threat with the virus. They are sitting there waiting to see if they survive. I'm sorry, I cannot take that lightly. I don't think that it makes sense to go to a football game. I think it's bloody stupid to go to a theatre. I think that um, it's disadvantageous to go to a restaurant or a pub. Surely, for three months of your life, you can forego these things which are purely pleasures. My thanks to Greg and my thanks to you for listening. And it's just been announced that this evening's Premier League clash between Arsenal and Manchester City at the Emirates Stadium has been postponed after Nottingham Forest and Olympiacos owner Evangelos Marinakis tested positive for coronavirus two weeks after watching his Greek team play the Gunners in North London. There's no denying the seriousness of this. As for Nadine Doris, I suppose she must have been in contact with her constituents, other MPs and cabinet ministers in the days before she was diagnosed with the virus. There's not much more we can say for now. Please pass on this podcast to others and do behave sensibly. Regular listeners to mine and Greg's 20-minute topic series of podcasts, we're putting that on the back burner for now due to the seriousness of this coronavirus situation, but we do plan to revive it once we're in calmer waters. For now, stay safe and join us again next week.